the leader of the Trump special grand jury speaks out. I got like a Ninja Turtle popsicle. It was awesome. And then I swore in Speaker Ralston still holding my popsicle. Fantastic. Welcome to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Greg Bluestein. And I'm Patricia Murphy, and we are two of the political insiders here at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. If you're just joining us for the first time, welcome, and be sure to follow us at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. We've got a jam-packed episode for you today. We're going to hear from the Fulton County Grand Jury forewoman as well as the Trump legal team. We're going to talk about the moves Atlanta is making to land the Democratic National Convention. We're going to discuss why Governor Kemp's visit to Texas signals possible breadcrumbs to the White House, and your questions from the listener mailbag and our who's up and who's down for the week. Plus, we're joined by two very special guests, AJC stars, City Hall reporter Riley Bunch and senior reporter Tamar Hallerman. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces, as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents... Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants a rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny... One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Let's get right to the big news. A few days after we got the redacted version of the Fulton County Special Grand Jury Report, we heard from, for the first time from the Special Grand Jury's forewoman, Emily Kors. We're going to bring in Tamar Hallerman, AJC senior reporter who's been all over this story for the newspaper and for national media outlets as well as a guest on so many programs. And of course, with her colleague, Bill Rankin, the host of the award-winning AJC podcast, Breakdown. Tamar, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me back. Okay, Tamar, I got to get to this because the listener mailbag is later, but we've gotten a lot of questions already, even I have, even though I have not been covering the story nearly as closely as you, about how this interview with the special grand jury forewoman came up. One was from Mara Davis, who asks, why is the grand jury doing a PR tour? (laughs) So I know that's not the case, but I want to let you have a chance to answer that. Well, I mean, first of all, it's a testament to the awesome beat reporting of our friend Kate Brombach from the AP. She found Emily's name in a subpoena um, months ago, back when the, the special grand jury was issuing subpoenas. And that's how she came across Miss Cor's name. And I mean, we had all been hoping that that grand jurors would come forward and talk to reporters now that this uh, final report was at least partially out. No one, myself included, none of us expected um, folks to come forward with their name, to do on-camera interviews, and to be as forthcoming as Ms. Kors has been this week. And I mean, she started with the AP. She talked to myself and Bill Rankin for for breakdown teas to our upcoming uh, episode next week. Hope you listen. Um, she also talked to the New York Times, NBC, CNN, 
and was very forthcoming with her opinions about what she thought about particular witnesses, about what might be coming in terms of recommendations for potential indictments, and her feelings about the investigation in general and what she was hoping DA Fonnie Willis would end up pursuing at the end of the day. It was truly a remarkable set of interviews. Tamar, what the heck? I don't understand how this happened. I I truly don't understand how prosecutors or the judge or the justice system itself didn't head this off at the pass. It's been such a secretive behind the scenes process. The process from the outside looking in is not over yet. We I don't I don't feel like people think it's over until there's a resolution to this case, but to see Emily Coors not just talking, but kind of blabbing just everywhere. She was everywhere all the time. And her demeanor, I think, was also really um, startling to people who were, I, I, I myself was expecting, I don't know why, maybe some sort of a mid-60s, um, maybe North Fulton four person from the jury. I just wasn't expecting somebody so young and someone so freewheeling with information and saying that it was it was just so exciting to be there and talking about um, which witnesses they really liked. They really liked how former House Speaker David Ralston. They just thought he was hilarious. And they talk, she talked about um, holding on to a Ninja Turtles popsicle while she swore him in. How does that even happen? I don't even understand how you have food in a courtroom. I don't know if this was in a courtroom or just sort of a side room, but it, it, it has all been so extraordinary. And I do think it colors the way people will receive this information when it when it comes out for some people. And I, I, I guess my question for you is, how does something like this happen? Well, let's back up a little bit, first of all, and talk about Emily Kors just for a little bit. She's 30 years old, a lifelong resident of the Atlanta area, lives in North Fulton, uh, was in between jobs when she got her uh, special grand jury summons and, you know, mostly worked retail and customer service jobs and then figured, okay, maybe I'm going to wait until my jury service is over before I find something else. And she mentioned that after she got picked and sworn in, no one else really was volunteering to be for a person. So she said, hey, why not? This sounds really cool and interesting. Um, worth noting that she said she's never voted before. And she said she wasn't super familiar with all the events that happened in 2020. She said she was really focused on the pandemic because she was working at Joanne Fabrics and masking and all those things. She she really only had vague understandings of, of what had happened in Georgia. Uh, but she's always been interested in politics and said, hey, why the heck not? I mean, taking a step back for a second, it's pretty darn remarkable when you think about it that a 30-year-old woman, and she's really small and tiny and reminds me of many of the women I went to high school with, that a woman like that was one of the most powerful people in Georgia last year and this year. It's a pretty remarkable statement about how our justice system works. Um, That said, Patricia, it's very unusual that a juror in any case, would be this forthcoming and going out, identifying themselves, being on camera, and just being so expressive in her facial movements as she was answering questions, so forthcoming in her opinions. And it's not something you would see in a federal grand jury case. There are very strict rules against talking about anything at all. But here's the thing that people don't realize. In Georgia, 
It's super loosey-goosey. Um, there's very much a presumption of openness uh, in terms of court proceedings. And the only thing that grand jurors are not allowed to discuss are the deliberations. There's been plenty of questions about what that means, and we'll talk about this a little later in the show, I'm sure. Judge McBurney ended up talking to us and clearing that up a little bit. But other than that, she technically is allowed to talk about her opinions and the testimony that she heard and even what's in the report. Um, And while she hinted heavily at what might be to come, she really didn't spill the beans in terms of the recommendations for indictments that we might see. Okay, tomorrow I'm going to get to a little bit more of that because... I am so fascinated about what McBurney might have told you, or at least the outlines of what she could and could not say. But first, one of the things that Ms. Kors did say was she confirmed kind of what we already knew, which was that the grand jury is going to recommend multiple indictments. You're not going to be shocked. It's not rocket science. Like, it's... I wonder who could possibly be on this... You know, it's... It's not rocket science, y'all. Like, there there may be parts of it that you did not expect, but I don't believe that the season finale will have any major plot twists. You know what I mean? Like, I just, I can't tell you because I can't tell you, but it's, I wonder who could possibly be there. Hmm. I just, it's just so <laughs> surreal, Tamar. I mean, it, we've been talking about this case for for months, right? The behind the scenes, the closed door secrecy. Now we're hearing from the special grand jury foreman who's not saying who's going to be indicted, but she's, she's, you know, she's talking in very blunt terms that, hey, we're not going to be surprised by anyone on that list. It was one of the most remarkable interviews of my career. And I don't think I fully realized it at the time, but the more that I listen back to it and the more I digest it, the more it's just like an, oh my God, moment. Okay. So I wanted to ask about what you brought up earlier, which is, you know, the the guardrails that Judge McBurney put around what special grand jurors could and could not say. So could there be legal peril with what she said to the AJC and these other media outlets? Well, it depends on who you ask. We've been hearing rumblings this week uh, that potentially the former president's lawyers or lawyers representing witnesses or likely targets in this investigation might file something in court, a motion maybe seeking to dismiss any potential future indictments or even seeking to move potential proceedings out of Fulton County. And they would cite something like these comments from Ms. Coors to argue that the special grand jury was prejudiced. But here's the the issue with that. This special grand jury was investigative in nature. It did not have indictment powers. It could only recommend things. And it's ultimately up to the DA to decide what she wants to pursue. And then not only that, she has to go present potential charges before a regular grand jury. So it has to go through a separate group of Fulton County citizens. So it's insulated. And then the other night we heard from President Donald Trump's uh lawyers here in Georgia, they spoke out for the first time since they were hired more than six months ago. And they said they're keeping their options open. They felt like Ms. Kaur's comments really showcased how unprofessional this investigation has been. And we've got that audio from Trump attorney Drew Finling. And the lens that was presented to us was that over the lens of unprofessionalism. And in fact, our suspicions of a circus were proven to be true. We heard about ice cream parties. 
we heard about swearing people under oath, um, holding Ninja Turtle popsicles, and we heard about um, the racing up to a uh, identified target, a major political figure that's identified as a target and excitedly shaking their hand. The public should know that whether you call this a special purpose grand jury or not, this is not the way that a grand jury is supposed to operate. Tamara, if you think about it, prosecutors really did have to find several unicorns in Fulton County who were not perceived as being prejudiced against Donald Trump or in the tank for Donald Trump. People who had the time to devote months and months of full-time schedules to sit there, and then people who they judged to be competent of getting the job done. Did you feel like from talking to her and seeing responses from other legal experts that this really will have any fallout, her media blitz that we're seeing here? Or do you think this will just be sort of a... a an idiosyncrasy of this part of the process, and then it'll just move forward to Fonnie Willis. I think the biggest danger here is that it could harm the public's perception of this investigation and the the kind of nonpartisan nature that at least the DA is hoping to show that this investigation was. And she's tried so hard. The fact that she appointed or she she requested a special grand jury in the first place was to try and insulate this politically a little bit. Because remember, Fannie Willis is a Democrat. She's looking exclusively at the activities of Republicans. So the whole idea of pulling together two dozen Fulton County residents was saying, you know, I'm going to take their recommendations that it's not partisan hacks who are telling me what to do. So this certainly could, you know, could hurt the way the public views all of this already. Although, to be frank, there were so many Republicans I've talked to for the last two years who've called this a witch hunt from the very beginning. It's worth noting that Trump's attorneys here in Georgia, when I asked them if they're going to file any potential motions based off of Ms. Cora's testimony, they wouldn't commit either way. They said all options are on the table and they're look at, looking at everything. I wouldn't be surprised if we see it from them or other attorneys of potential targets in all of this. But We did end up hearing from Judge McBurney, who has been overseeing this special grand jury, and he clarified what he meant, his definition of what deliberations are. And it was pretty straightforward to him. Deliberations were solely the part of the investigation where grand jurors were meeting privately amongst themselves. That's when they were kind of... um, processing all the information that they had heard, voting on potential charges, um, kind of hashing out strategy in terms of that. What was not deliberations in his description? Anytime a witness was testifying, anytime the DA or one of her ADAs were in the room. And so using that definition, it appears that Ms. Coors did not break any rules in Georgia, as I mentioned, which are pretty permissible compared to what you'd see on the federal level. This is all so fascinating. We cannot wait to hear the next episode of Breakdown, your podcast, along with Bill Rankin tomorrow. Before you got to go, can you give us a glimpse of what to expect next week? Well, we spoke with Miss Coors for about 90 minutes on Tuesday, so there's a lot more than what we included in our article. That was the breaking news uh, last week. And we also spoke with Drew Finling and Jennifer Little, two of Trump's Georgia-based attorneys, for 45 minutes um, last night. So we have a lot more depth from them as well. We can't wait to hear it. Thank you so much for joining us tomorrow. Thank you. And now we're bringing in Atlanta City Hall reporter Riley Bunch. 
a brand new reporter of the AJC, but a veteran Atlanta reporter who's been covering public policy, the state legislature, politics for years now in our fair city. Riley, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Greg. Happy to be here and happy to be on with the AJC now. Yes, we are so delighted to have you part of the team. Okay, Riley, you broke a big story earlier this week about what steps Atlanta is already taking to prepare for the Democratic National Convention. We still don't know if Atlanta's got the you know the big showcase political event, but the city is already taking some behind-the-scenes moves in order to lay the groundwork. What's what's going on? So up until now, we didn't have a lot of concrete details about what was in Atlanta's bid specifically. We knew it wanted to focus on the tourism of the city, the history of the city and things like that. But we don't really know the numbers that they're putting forward until now, until some information provided to the AJC, where we have a meticulous list, laundry list of what organizers are pitching the city as to host the DNC, 15,000 hotel rooms, 70 hotels, millions of event spaces across different complexes, across different um, event venues. It's quite staggering the numbers they put together, and I can't even fathom the time that it took to do this and the manpower it took to do this. But what I'm telling you, Greg, is it's down to the number of parking spaces in each parking deck around the arena. Well, anybody who's tried to park during a convention knows that that might be the most important piece of information uh, that they could possibly provide the organizers. Riley, did you get a sense of how Atlanta is stacking up compared to Chicago and New York? We see the bid. You laid out the bid so explicitly for us. And so we know what organizers are seeing in front of them. What do you think our competition looks like right now? It's interesting because each city has kind of a different argument, obviously, of why they're better. And for Atlanta, um, one of the big things they're pitching as us is a, quote, all-in-one solution. So everything you need is pretty much in a very compact space downtown. And we also have the world's busiest airport that they have an interesting note in there about 80% of the U.S. population lives within a 2.5-hour flight from Hartsfield-Jackson International Airport. So I think that that's what Atlanta has going for them. And And also something that's a little bit different than New York and Chicago is our history Um, Atlanta paints itself in its proposals as the cradle of the civil rights movement, the future of the Democratic Party. And I think that that's one of the things they're really trying to play up against the the other cities. And another distinction, of course, is the political competitiveness. Georgia is the heart of the South. It is uh, a state that flipped for the first time since 1992 in the presidential contest. It's the home of Senators Ossoff and Warnock, who flipped control of the Senate with their victories back in 2021. And they're, you know, trying to remind folks in uh, in Washington, in President Biden's inner circle, that Chicago and New York are huge cities and they're very important to Democrats, but they're not competitive. But, Riley, here's what I want to ask you about. The knives are coming out. The elbows are, they're throwing some elbows. The leaders of those cities' bids are reminding Washington as well about Georgia's union rules, about Georgia's permissive gun laws, about issues that could make it a little more difficult for Democrats to go all in on Atlanta. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the interesting things about having the Democratic convention coming to a Republican, you know, controlled state is we have these more conservative laws like the gun laws that have hindered some of the um, concerts 
coming here and, uh, you know, some of the big events are worried about the gun laws where you can carry guns in public property and have concealed carry weapon laws um, and our right to work laws. And I, that's something really tricky that Atlanta has to navigate around because the Atlanta city officials, obviously, they say, you know, we don't support this and we're going to do anything to make sure that, that it doesn't inhibit our bid at all. But that's the reality that they're living in is that they have these Republican policies that, that you know, that's one of the downsides of our bid. Riley, Greg and I have talked about how fast the press release would go out from Brian Kemp's office if the DNC decided to come to Georgia to say, we told you so. Even the DNC thinks we're a great place to do business. So that will be, you know, there's nothing they can do to prevent that. But that may be just an unintended consequence. Um, But we know from talking to the mayor, that this is a public-private partnership that the city has put together. Unlike the Chicago bid, where Governor J.B. Pritzker is a billionaire and could literally write a check and pay for the whole thing, Atlanta is putting together a package. So who are the people really driving this effort right now? In terms of um, big political players, right, we have Andre Dickens, former Governor Andrew Young, MUN Ambassador Andrew Young, U.S. Representative Nakima Williams, and we have big political names, right? But then we also have other people that are involved in the bid. We have our Atlanta Convention and Visitors Bureau, which is playing a huge role in securing all the different locations. We have um, philanthropist Billy Aaron who's involved in it, right? There's just a lot of political playing going around, but also touching on different industries and different sectors um, that will all play a part in how this comes together. There's so much at play here, Riley. The big question is, are you hearing anything about when we might find out if Atlanta is the pick? You know, it's funny because every week I check and every week I hear it's imminent. I, you know, if oh, it comes Im- up to everything's the White Everything's imminent House. these days. <laughs> <laughs> Everything is imminent these days, as Patricia said. (laughs) And then before we let you go, because I know you're on all sorts of deadlines, what stories do you have coming up that we really want to watch out for? I think when we're DNC related, we talk about some of the obstacles that we do face that we touched on in the show, you know, the gun laws, the right to work laws. But also, I think that the Democratic National Convention is not just this national showcase, but it's also trying to keep Georgia voters engaged who are tired. You know, we've been through three years. So how does the Democratic officials, Democratic Party play to the voters that they want to stay engaged in the state? Well, we will stay tuned to your coverage, to your colleague, Will Noble's coverage. You guys are paying attention to City Hall closer than anyone on the planet. So we can't wait to see what you guys have for us. Thanks so much for joining. Thank you. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter.
And we're back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm your host, Greg Bluestein, along with your other host, Patricia Murphy. We're also among the authors of the Morning Jolt newsletter, which sets the stakes and the agenda in Georgia politics. And you can get it in your inbox every morning if you're a subscriber to the AJC. You can join the community right now by going to subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts and get six months of unlimited digital access for just 99 cents. That's subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts so you always know what's really going on. Patricia, what's really going on is Governor Kemp is making some big moves. As he reported in the jolt this week, he's headed to Texas with a bunch of other big-name Republican officials at a conference organized by Karl Rove uh, to try to raise his profile. But back in Georgia, things are getting interesting, too. He had a big speech to some of his most prominent donors where he kind of laid down the law. He said, we don't need the state Republican Party. I'm just paraphrasing here. But he said, we don't need the state Republican Party anymore to help build our infrastructure. I've got my own way to do that. I've got something called my leadership committee. It's called the Georgians First Leadership Committee. And it's set up under a new law that Governor Kemp signed a few years ago that allows candidates for governor and for lieutenant governor to raise unlimited funds So it's this huge new fundraising mechanism that really benefits incumbents in Georgia. And he is, even after he won his re-election bid, he's not disbanding this committee. He's actually using it as basically a de facto state Republican Party because he and other Republican officials and activists are so sickened by the way that the state GOP has been running under David Schaefer, who backed uh, Trump-backed challengers over Republican incumbents in the midterms, that they're saying they're going to put the party's future in their hands. Yes. Read between the lines when Kemp is saying, I, we don't need the Republican Party. He's also saying, I don't need to drive or fly hours to Jekyll Island to get booed by party activists who don't really represent the mainstream of this party, which is what has been happening with him. He went to uh, the GOP convention, is full of very, very pro-Trump activists, and he got booed and he had to really work the room uh, work the hallways just to sort of set the situation even so that he could have a story to tell coming out of there that was, oh, he yes, he was booed, but the boos weren't that loud. And he answered all the questions in the hallway, you know, and that did, that didn't really feel like the energy that truly was representative of GOP voters here in the state. So in addition to having this new funding mechanism, in a way, it really insulates Kemp and future governors from grassroots anger, to be honest with you, if they can sort of wall themselves off in a way from really having to rely on that party base for survival, it gives them an avenue where they can be a lot more in control of their own destiny. I mean, and what an advantage this has between Governor Kemp and Stacey Abrams. These leadership committees raise tens of millions of dollars to help their respective bids for office, and sometimes in installments as big as five million bucks. So unlimited contributions, you can raise a ton of cash. Governor Kemp, Stacey Abrams already did. But what's interesting about this is that right now, with the governor still in office, but there's no Democratic nominee, and there can't be a Democratic nominee until 2026. And so right now, the governor is free to continue to amass all sorts of cash, build up an edge and advantage. Of course, he can't run for governor again, but he can certainly use this money to push his priorities, to help his candidates to help shape the debate in Georgia and beyond. And he made very clear, Patricia, that he looked to be playing in down-ticket races. 
you know, of course he wants to work to defeat John Ossoff in 2026, and he might be the candidate who ends up running against Ossoff. But he also said he's going to play in local races and legislative races, in county commission races, and very interestingly, in local district attorney races. So Governor Kemp is going to be a force up and down the ballot, even when he's not on it. Yeah, and that's such a different model from governors that we've seen before. Um, It has a lot to do with the fact that Kemp is just younger. He really has a lot of miles left in his tires. And so he has a a long future to plan from here. And it really does feel like that includes another run for some kind of office or some kind of public-facing position. With Governor Nathan Deal, he had already served in Congress for two decades. He was not going back to D.C. He was not playing in down-ticket races and making sure that the party of the future looked like the party he wanted it to look like for the long term. Um, Even Governor Sonny Perdue, he had his own agenda, but he didn't feel like he was really laying the groundwork for some big future in politics. And this is just the totally different dynamic from that. In addition to all of these changes he's making here, Kemp has really expanded his reach in national influence. I'm not going to say national politics because it's not like he's in Iowa and New Hampshire, but this uh, donor retreat that he's going to in Texas, he was invited by Karl Rove and he and Rove have developed this friendship. Apparently, it really took off during COVID. Uh, They now text with each other. They sort of exchange ideas with each other. And Rove has just this mind that is always firing on all cylinders with ideas and strategies and what are we going to do and how should we look at these things? And so it's a really fascinating partnership. Right now, Rove doesn't have an acolyte or a sort of a, you know, sort of a future candidate to mold and and set up for a future. So to me, that would be uh, that would be a fascinating combination right there. That is 100% pure speculation, I want to say. But those are the types of relationships that really matter for somebody who is looking to expand their reach and national influence is somebody like Rove who has that influence. So he'll be out there in Austin with White House hopefuls, Nikki Haley, who's already announced, Mike Pence, who is soon to announce, we believe, Tim Scott, who has already started his listening tour around the country, including in Iowa. So he is out there with the big dogs and he is, um, you have to put yourself in those arenas and that's exactly what he's doing. Yeah, he's building that network. And look, you know, we teased at the top of the show that it could signal possible breadcrumbs to the White House. I'm still a skeptic about 2024. Um, but, you know, I, I, I think it's also safe to say that Governor Kemp and his allies are playing the long game. And if not 2024, we could be talking about him in 2028, 2032. But this is how it starts. And one of the ways it starts is not only going to Texas and hanging out with Carl Rove and some of his buddies who are big ticket donors, but also making sure you consolidate your base of support back in Georgia. Because Patricia, you mentioned earlier that time when he got booed at the Georgia GOP gathering back in 21. It was probably the low point of Governor Kemp's um, political career, at least his recent political career. It was a really, uh, you know, he got cheered too, but the the boos were, were loud in that room. You know, I don't think if he would go back to the Georgia GOP these days, I don't think he's going to get booed by many people now after an eight point victory over Stacey Abrams. Our polls show he's at 62% of approval rating. His poll shows him well above 50% in in approval rating. But at the same time, he's got to make sure he locks down Georgia and he's got to ensure he's a force to be reckoned with in state politics. And, And that involves playing up and down the ballot. 
Yep. And uh, he's not taking anything for granted. I mean, again, this is just such an unusual demeanor for a second term governor, unless it's somebody who has designs on the future. If you also look at what he's doing down at the General Assembly, he's pursuing really reliably conservative issues like a property tax rebate and across the board tax rebate for all Georgia citizens, things that are just broadly popular conservative approved, not especially controversial. He's also pursuing issues like public safety. He's pushing a gang unit, funding the gang unit, pushing efforts to toughen sentencing for people who are recruiting young gang members. These are the types of things where if you go out with a poll in Georgia, those are those are plus 50. Some of those are plus 60. People like those issues. So he's playing a very, um, it's not that it's safe, but it's just going to work down there at the General Assembly. He's not making a whole bunch of waves. He's not pushing conservative social issues. He may end up signing some of those. That's going to be have to be something that he considers as he's going forward, and we'll watch that really carefully. But the type of legislation that he's pushing down there really looks like it's broadly consensus-driven. I think you're exactly right. Okay, it's time for our next segment. The Listener Mailbag. You can now call the Politically Georgia podcast hotline anytime. Leave a question and we'll play it back and answer your question right here on the podcast. The number is 770-810-5297. That's 770-810-5297. Our star producer, Shaney B., who did such great work on this week's podcast from Plains, Georgia. Just an unbelievable episode. He is standing by now. He's back to his normal duties, waiting for your calls. Back here in Atlanta, it's been a, it's been quite a week, hasn't it, Greg and Patricia? Oh, it really Shane, has. Yes, we let you take a two-hour nap after <laughs> that's Wednesday, the, and now you're not allowed to sleep again until we're done with all this. Yes, there's there, there will be no more <laughs> sleeping, but uh, it's been such. Such sad news. It's been very emotional, especially for the people down there in Southwest Georgia in Plains. But it was really an honor to to go and spend some time in that town and just to get to know them and talk to them. And it was really a special day. And and I think it's just awesome that we were able to share it with politically Georgia listeners the way we we got to. Well, if you haven't listened to that special episode yet, you can find it wherever you get your podcast, because it was our last, it was the episode right before this one. You're not going to have to scroll down too far. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, of course, on Monday, we did a special episode of Politically Georgia to cover the breaking news that former President Jimmy Carter had chosen to enter into home hospice care. Um, After we did that episode, we got a phone call from Ben in Helen, Georgia, and he wanted to share his thoughts. Hey Greg and Patricia, I just listened to your um, I just listened to your last podcast, just kind of going over his life and all. And um, my God, it it is very powerful thinking about his life. And uh, I know he's not gone yet, but it's just really it really is hard to think about him just being gone one day. And I guess we knew it was coming, but. I take comfort in knowing that if we could all be half the person he was, then the world would be a much better, a much kinder place. And he's made me proud to be a Georgian. Well, Ben from Helen, we really saw 
the way you feel. We saw that down in Plains this week. I think that we are going to see that all across the country and really around the world when um, when the time comes. Uh, there's no way to overstate how much of an impact Jimmy Carter has had on his own hometown. Um, but then we have been flooded with anecdotes from people who knew him at all sorts of different points in his life. Either their dad was on a submarine with him. They worked with him at the White House. Somebody was a um, a staffer, even in just the correspondence office of the White House. Invariably, they said that Jimmy Carter came in to say hello to them, met them, took the time to get to know them. A freelance photographer's son, when the freelance photographer died, said his dad had uh, photographed celebrities, the Dalai Lama, um, anybody you could think of, the Beatles. uh, And he said one person wrote me a note when my dad passed away, and it was Jimmy Carter. So. We are going to just see an immense flood of emotion because he's just had uh, an impact on on issues, but more so on people. And that will be his legacy from here on out. And Ben, thank you so much for calling. And let me tell you this. We here at the AJC are committed to bringing all facets of the story to you. Audio, visual, video, print, online, everything. We had a team of felt like eight or nine reporters down there over the weekend Patricia and I and Shaney B are back in Atlanta, but we're bound to go back. Um, and we have more reporters who are there right now, stationed visual reporters, video reporters, print reporters, digital reporters, stationed in planes to tell you that story. So keep reading, keep listening, keep watching. We're going to be here for you. And you can find it all at AJC.com slash Jimmy Carter. Okay, now it's time for our Who's Up and Who's Down segment. Patricia, we always like to end our week on a high note. So let's start with who's down. Who's your who's down? This one wasn't hard for me. My who's down for the week was Marjorie Taylor Greene. She's been my who's up in the past. And that was because while the election for speaker was going on, she really had played the strategic inside game and positioned herself for really serious power going forward in this next Congress. She now has that power. I think in my mind, I thought that she would use that power responsibly. (laughs) I don't know why I thought that. (laughs) Because this week, she um, came out in favor and suggested a national divorce, which she said that's not a civil war, but it actually is a civil war if anybody doesn't want the national divorce. And it's just so irresponsible. It's It's rhetoric that is so unhelpful. It's so divisive. It's just the exact opposite of what we need from leaders in a public policy space. The only reason there are irreconcilable differences is because there are people on both sides of the aisle trying to make it that way. There's a lot of profit in making problems impossible to resolve, but promising that you can resolve them if you're there just a little bit longer. And so I think Marjorie Taylor Greene is who's down for now. She was she was accruing some power and respect and I think that right now she's just got power. And by the way, she said that red states and blue states should divorce. Well, Georgia, you know, Georgia's not really a red or a blue state right now. It's pretty purple. But what there? Where does that leave our own home states? I know. In my plan? column, I wrote, "So whose house do we sleep at on the weekends if we're not red <laughs> or blue?" Give <laughs> me flashbacks to my childhood. Okay. Oh no. <laughs> my my who's down is Georgia GOP Chair David Schaefer. Because Governor Kemp's maneuvering this week gave us a reminder 
of what his leadership has done to the state Republican Party. You know, when he decided to side against Republican incumbents and back Donald Trump back challengers, even if it meant, you know, going against the grain with Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, Governor Kemp, and other GOP incumbents, he made a fateful decision to kind of seal the deal for the state GOP. I mean, it was already heading that way where you could already tell that that powerful Republicans like Governor Kemp were going to move away. But man, did that hasten the, the acceleration away from the state GOP? State GOP isn't going anywhere. It's not disappearing, but its influence, its clout is going to continue to decline, in my view, um, with the advent of these leadership committees. And we saw a big step in that direction this week. Okay, Patricia, who's your who's up? My who's up is... State Representative John Carson, Republican from Marietta, who was the co-sponsor and co-leader on a bill with Representative Esther Panich to add um, anti-Semitism to Georgia's hate crime law. Specifically, and this was something that Carson talked about down at the Capitol this week, specifically drawing a swastika and using it to intimidate somebody or a group will now be an act of domestic terrorism. That is a real crime with real punishment. And I think that we have seen um, a really rapid, really troubling increase in anti-Semitic acts um, in Atlanta, all across the state. And it is really imperative that there is a way for law enforcement and communities to fight back against that. And that's what this bill will do. Good. Who's up? Um, that was my second place who's up. My first place who's up? The Georgia Bulldogs. <laughs> there was a little question. About that that was not. my other one. That was my second place. <laughs> Great mind. See, we don't we don't coordinate before the show on this one. Um, but no, there was a question about whether or not the back-to-back national championship football team, Georgia Bulldogs, would be invited to the White House to celebrate formally with President Joe Biden. They weren't invited last year. It was said to be a pandemic-related issue. Well, uh, you know, some players were asking, including Warren Brinson, saying, hey, where's our invite, Joe Biden? That went a little viral. You had Fox News jump on it. You had Republican politicians like Attorney General Chris Carr jump on it. You also had a lot of fans, including a lot of people in my world, ask me like, hey, what is the deal with this? What's going on? Uh, well, we found the answer. Uh, well, the White House said to expect the invite really soon. We still don't have exact timing, but we can expect the Georgia Bulldogs to be invited to celebrate their back-to-back wins with Joe Biden fairly soon. I want to say that the co who's up with that has to be the AJC Morning Jolt because the lead of the jolt said that the Georgia Bulldogs were looking for their invite from the White House. About 12 hours later, we heard from the White House and said, the invite is on its way. So, you know, when we say it sets the stakes and the agenda in Georgia politics, I mean, it really does sometimes. It's also a reminder that anytime we put Georgia Bulldogs in the jolt, it's guaranteed to get a lot of clicks. So. 100%. <laughs> We're revealing our secret ways. Exactly. Well, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Politically Georgia podcast. You can count on new episodes to come out every Wednesday, every Friday, or whenever news breaks. We'll see you next time on Politically Georgia from the AJC. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years, and I am still amazed at how rich the city's Black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. 
Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically Black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologeticallyATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Thank you.